Good morning, church. I'm going to ask you again to open up with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. This will be the last time we're in Matthew 13. We're looking at the last sermon in our series on the, the parables of the kingdom. I'm going to read Matthew 13, verse 47 to 50. Um, in fact, to verse 52. Matthew 13, 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for the way that you have guided and led your church through the preaching of this series. We are grateful for the power of your word. Jesus, we are grateful for your mastery in storytelling. We thank you for these precious parables. We know that they have challenged us at every turn and so we come to your word one more time in this series and ask that you would challenge us again. That your spirit would take aim at our hearts. That we would not be able to avoid what you have to say to us. Give us open hearts and willing ears. Give us eyes to see. Do that work by the power of your spirit. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen. In 1986, two Israeli brothers, Moshe and Yuval Lufan, were fishermen who worked along the north shore in the Sea of Galilee. They noticed while they were walking along the shore, something sticking out of the mud. Now the waters had receded quite a bit this year. It had been a, a, a rather dry season. And what they saw sticking out of the mud turned out to be quite a massive archaeological find. It was a fishing vessel that dated back to around the time of Christ. Up until this point, historians had relied on the biblical data to tell them what, what um, fishing was like, the practice, and what the boats were like in that region. And this was a confirmation of the biblical data, a boat from the very region where Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and the disciples were, where they plied their trade. They came from Bethsaida, the house of fishing. And it's a good chance that the vessel that these brothers found was the very top, or of the very top from which Jesus sat when he spoke to the crowds on this day in Matthew 13 and shared these parables. A shallow drafted flat bottom boat that could get right up to the shoreline. Now we know in this final parable that Jesus is probably not sitting on the boat anymore. 
The crowds have probably dispersed by this point, and Jesus is privately teaching his disciples in a house with them, and yet he goes to this image, one so intimately familiar to them, something that had been for many of them their daily trade. And the net that Jesus is talking about, the net that gets cast out, it's a specific kind of net. They, they call it a, a drag net, a massive net. Some say it would be more than hundreds of feet in, in, um, in its uh, length. It had floats at the top and weights at the bottom. So one method of using this net would be to attach one end to the shore and attach the other end to the boat, and the boat would um, sail off from the shore, and then it would go in a, a large semicircle, dragging the net behind it, and it would uh, c- uh, come to the shore at another location. And then they would pull the net together and slowly begin to drag that net back to shore. And in that net would be a massive catch of fish. At other times, maybe one end would be attached to a second boat and the boats would sail away from each other in a large circle. And then the same thing, that net would be dragged in. And it would be uh, such a big net and such a big catch, very difficult for fish to escape. And Jesus is referring to this, something that was... Every day for them, familiar to them. They say there were 20 different kinds, over 20 different kinds of species of fish um, in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And once the, the net would be drawn, those fish would need to be sorted. Many of them were inedible, maybe because of the law of Moses, they weren't able to eat some. Some of them were inedible, maybe, I don't know much about fish, they tasted bad or they were too bony, I'm not sure, but they, they're called trash fish. Those fish would be thrown back and the good fish would be put into containers, prepared and then shipped off to market. The scene Jesus describes is about as familiar as anything in their ordinary lives. While he's speaking to him, they have the calluses on their hands as proof of the details of what he is talking about. What we see yet again in Matthew chapter 13 is Jesus disarming his disciples. He likens again the kingdom of heaven to something that to them seemed mundane and ordinary. He uses the familiar and the intimate, their former occupation, to get inside their comfort zones, slip under their guards, and confront them with something of great urgency and importance. There's nowhere, when they're sitting in this room, there's nowhere for them to run and hide. They must face the challenge of what He says in this parable, and we must face it too. As with every parable that we've seen so far in this chapter, The parables of the kingdom of heaven, they do this. They cut through the tendency that we have to regulate the kingdom to something that is far off, something that is removed from our everyday lives and our everyday decisions. How I treat my family when I get home after a long and stressful day at the office. How I respond to unreasonable clients and irrational co-workers how I go about my daily chores, my shopping and doing the dishes, what I do when I'm at home alone. The, the point is the kingdom of heaven is not far off. The king has come. And if you would claim his kingdom as your own, he must be today your king. He must be your king. His word is given in order to be heard and obeyed today. His power is made apparent in the weakness of our lives today. 
And his worth suffuses our mundane and everyday with meaning. And it is the bedrock of our joy today. And today, in this parable, he disarms us with another challenge. And I will speak very honestly with you right now. Last week, I stood here and I said, I've been waiting and waiting for this parable of the treasure hidden in the field. The parable of the pearl of great price, one that's precious to me. I looked forward to preaching that one for uh, maybe as long as I've been preaching. Well, this week, I have not looked forward to preaching this parable. I haven't looked forward to preaching this message. There are similarities between this parable and the parable of the wheat and the weeds. So part of the reason is we have covered some of the ground, but the real reason that I've sort of been squirming as I've prepared this message is that the challenge has taken aim, the challenge that is given to the church has taken aim right at me. This passage is going to raise the question of our sense of urgency about Christ's commission to go to the lost. We are a church who love the truth. We love the gospel. The truth that Jesus sets us free. We preach Christ crucified here. We, we do champion the Great Commission. I believe that we have a budget that is structured around the Great Commission. We have sent missionaries and we pray for our missionaries around the world. And I know there are many people in this church who give sacrificially to that mission. But we know, don't we, that as we go into a culture that is getting increasingly more insular and isolated, maybe more opposed to what we have to say, we find it hard, don't we? We find it hard to be faithful to the Great Commission in our personal lives. And this parable is going to address that in us today. I have not been eager to preach this because I'm in the same boat as you are. I don't come to this message as your pastor thinking to myself, I wish that those people would be more bold and go out. I come to it saying, God, I know that I am timid and I am afraid. So help me to feel the weight of the call until it sends me into the world, until I go. I almost didn't preach this passage. I thought we'd covered it, the wheat and the weeds. Let me do something else. But we are not today going to avoid this challenge. We're going to face it head on as a church. And I have two headings for us. The first heading is related to what is the everyday business of our lives as kingdom citizens. And the second is what is to be our everyday reality as citizen, citizens of His kingdom. So number one, number one, the everyday business of our lives is to cast the net wide to cast the net wide. Verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. The fish of every kind here caught in the net are people gathered together by the gospel going out. And it's fish of every kind because that's how the gospel goes out, right? And Jesus uses a picture for the disciples of what was everyday and ordinary to describe to them what is to be their business, their everyday business as disciples of Christ. When he called the disciples, what did he say to them? He said, come and follow me. You will become fishers of men. Casting the net of the gospel out, 
was to be their everyday business. And it's true, we need to be confronted with this. It's true of all of Christ's disciples. Now, I don't know much about fishing. I've been fishing with people a few times, and I've seen how they open up their, their tackle boxes, and you see in those boxes all kinds of different uh, lures and, and tackle, and I assume that some of, the, some of them are for some kinds of fish, like if you go trout fishing in the Midlands, you need a specific kind of one of those little um, frog-looking tackles or something. Others are different. I'm sure it's different when you go deep-sea fishing, um, but there's none of that in this passage, right? Just a great big net. If you were to go to these fishermen and ask, what are you looking for? What are you trying to find? They would look at you as if you're crazy. We've got this massive net. We're looking for fish. We're going for fish. The drag net is not for selective fishing. It gathers in fish of every kind and every stripe. And that is true of the gospel as well as it goes out. The gospel is not bound to a particular type of person. It is not bound to one people group. The gospel is for the whole world. There are are people in our world today who accuse Christianity. Uh, They accuse us. They say things like Christianity is a Western religion, a white man's religion, but that can't possibly be true. Long before it ever went to the West, it was in in the Middle East, it was in Africa before it ever came to the West. And where is the the gospel spreading today? It's spreading all over the world, isn't it? And what this parable can do for us is if we can catch a vision here and this vision descend into our hearts, a vision of of the biblical, all the world planted in our hearts. That's what we are to have. All the world gathered around the throne of Christ. All the world gathered in by the gospel. It is that vision that drives how we send our missionaries, isn't it? We send our missionaries to the four corners of the world, but we need that vision to be planted in our hearts. And when it is planted in our hearts, it will affect the way that we live our lives as well. It will show in the way that we engage with people, even in our little worlds. It will show in a lifestyle, for example, of hospitality, where we leverage our lives in order to reach those who don't know Christ like we do. It will show in a a culture of hospitality in this church where we are welcoming to the lost, where we are welcoming to those who come in and are seeking, where we are welcoming to people who don't look like us or who are different to us. I don't know if you've tracked um, the, the talk and the principles of church growth over the last few decades. Church growth, we, we've been speaking about it and we've had a conference about it recently, but it's a word that is used very widely in the church. And over the last few decades, there have been people who have talked or spoken about what they call the um, homogeneous principle, homogeneous principle, sorry, of church growth. And this principle was spearheaded by churches in what we call the seeker-sensitive movement, megachurches that grew in the 80s and the 90s. And they found this. They did research and they said, and this is how they built their churches. They said the fastest way to grow the church is when the gospel is propagated along particular social lines and particular networks so that when people come to church, they don't have to cross ethnic and cultural and class barriers in order to become Christians. This is the thinking. You package a product. A package a product and it's a, a particular music style, something particular that people can come to. 
and then they'll feel comfortable when they walk into church, and the church will grow rapidly as they seamlessly integrate into the life of the church with people who are just like them and share their interests. And churches were built on this principle. But is the church built around homogeneity like that? Is that the biblical goal? Is that the ideal? Is that where the power of the gospel is seen? Isn't that how clubs work? We build our clubs around similar interests, hang out with people who are just like us. We have similar hobbies. The plan of God is so much broader, so much greater than that. It has been from the beginning a people gathered for himself from around the world, all the world. So we know that linguistic diversity began where? It began at the Tower of Babel, right in Genesis chapter 11, when God confused and frustrated the arrogant rebellion of man. But what happens on the very next page in Genesis 12? We see a promise given to Abraham. A promise, and this is God's multi-ethnic plan in this promise, in His covenant with Abraham. Genesis 12 verse 3, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And through the patriarchs, God brings a nation. Israel has called out and chosen people. But they are chosen. Why? They're chosen in order to carry the hope of that blessing given to Abraham, that promise given to Abraham. They're called to carry that hope for the whole, whole world. They will be the people through whom the Messiah would come. And the Messiah would not be for one people. He would be a savior for the world. The prophets bear witness to this hope. We see in Isaiah 2, 2-3, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and they will say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The promise is spoken again in Habakkuk 2 verse 14. And I hope this is the promise or the, the future that you cling to. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. And the gospels come, the king comes, he is the shepherd of Israel, but he's not just here for the lost sheep of Israel. Other sheep, he says, have I not of this fold. He is the savior of all men. We see his heart. I have come to seek and to save the lost. He is the one who leaves the 99 for the one. This is a vision that Christ is calling us to. It's a vision that this parable is calling us to. One that ultimately would grow in the hearts of the disciples. They would have to get this. You are to go, not just to Jerusalem, but to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And church, we are called to have this vision settle in our hearts. Revelation 7, 9-10, to the future that God is creating for us. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
Is that glorious to you? Is that a future you long for? To be gathered together with all the peoples of the world, the nations, bringing the treasures of the nations in, transfixed before the glory of the Lamb. As fish of every kind fill the net, there's an opportunity for the church, even in this age, to become a foretaste of that vision. In our context, we need to think about it. The church planted in a community ought to resemble, it ought to resemble the, um, what's the word? <laughs> diversity, sorry. It ought to resemble the diversity of the culture surrounding it, the community surrounding it. In our context, there is a lot of hurt in our country, a lot of racial tension even still that our people experience. We are called to be citizens of another kingdom, one that is not bound by race and not bound to one people group. We are brothers and sisters who have a commonality that, not is, the co that is not the color of our skin or worldly marks of distinctions, worldly interests. Our commonality is the blood of Christ. We are reconciled to Him and we are reconciled to one another. We are, Ephesians 2 says, a spiritual house where the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. Church, do we reflect this truth? Someone has put it this way. This is who we are to be, a window in a dark world where anyone may look to glimpse another world, the kingdom of heaven, where fish of every kind, people of every stripe and standing belong, and they belong together. This is the biblical vision, even for the church. Is that a vision in your heart? HBC, is this our vision? How are we doing on this? We are called to have this vision grow in our hearts, to cultivate the heart of the psalmist. Psalm 96 verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And so we do, we cry out to God to use us and to send us and to help us send to them that they may be saved by the power of God. Psalm 67 verse 4, we cry, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. So we pray. We prayed this morning as well earnestly for our missionaries. We pour our hearts into those prayers that God would use them to create a people for himself from around the world. But we also need to understand that mission is not just out there in the four corners of the globe. Mission is here in Hillcrest as well. Someone has said, mission is across the street and around the world. Let all the peoples praise you as a prayer that includes the people you see day to day in your own lives. We are gospel one, and so we are to be gospel driven, and that means that we want our lives and our church and what we do to mirror the love of Christ. We live a life of hospitality because that's how Jesus was. As he came to the earth, so we go to the earth. As he came to the world, we go into it. He is, John 1 verse 5, the light that shone in the darkness so that the darkness has not overcome. He is the true light, John 1 9, which gives light to everyone which came into the world. John 1 14, he is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ stepped into our stories. He stepped into our mess. 
He crossed the greatest of barriers in order to love and redeem us. And if we love redemption, if we love the redemption that we have received, it ought to energize us to think of being this kind of spiritual house of reconciliation and should energize us to go. We go and we trust Jesus with our interactions with people in the world. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 22 to 23, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Could we receive the blessings that we have in Christ and keep those blessings to ourselves? Surely not. We are to cultivate this hope in our hearts, this stoke this fire in our hearts, that others would come to know that blessing. And oh God, that they would know it because of what we say and what we do and the way that we live our lives. That hope should be stronger than the fear that we have. I know the fear you have because it's a fear that I have as well. The fear that keeps us quiet. Because making disciples is the everyday business of every disciple you need to understand this. This is not for pastors and elders only. This is not for Christians who, who have been Christians for decades. This is for all disciples. The command is given not just to the apostles, but for all. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, what we call the Great Commission. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When we go, we know He is with us. Number two. Number two today, the everyday reality of our lives is the certainty of the sorting everyday realities of our lives is the certainty of the sorting. We live, we know, we live in a culture that has all but solidified certain ideals, and if you don't agree with those ideals, it is squeezing you harder and harder and harder, and so it does. Don't you feel it, that the, the fear that you have in going? Because you, you, you don't want to be seen as a bigot in what you go and say. You don't want to be seen with your friends as being intellectually um, weak, but we are called to understand and we say no matter how it sets us at odds with the prevailing culture, we must believe the word of our king. And what you see in the world today is a kind of reductionism with regards to Jesus, a whittling down of what Jesus says so that it can fit into society's set of values. The world would create a false Jesus made in the image of man. That's what they're doing, and they're using that Jesus, that version of Christianity, as a weapon against the church. I saw it this week, just as an example, this kind of thinking. I watched a, a video of a man, and he didn't say anything in the video. He just held up this white placard, a blank white card, and on the screen appeared the words, what Jesus said about abortion. And on the card, there was nothing, it was blank. And then the words appeared, what Jesus said about homosexuality. And then the words appeared, what Jesus said about people of other religions going to hell. And then finally, the words appeared, what Jesus said about love and peace and compassion and kindness. And he turned over the card, and on the other side it said, just about everything. That is the mindset towards Christ 
today, as if what Christ says can be divorced from the rest of Scripture when Jesus taught us to believe that Scripture is God's holy word, and that's how He lived His life. And it ignores, doesn't it? It actually ignores what Jesus says positively about the value of human life, what He said about marriage, and certainly, as we see in this passage, what He said about the reality of hell. Let me read these words to you again. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Are those words serious for you today? We don't distinguish in the preaching of the gospel. The gospel goes out to all. Our message goes out to all. The offer is made to all. But we need to be understanding of the clear teaching of Christ here. And that is that God does distinguish at the final judgment. There will be a sorting And it will be personal and it will be specific. This is not the first time Jesus has spoken like this. There will be sheep and goats, he said, wheat and weeds, good fish and bad fish. And in this parable of the net, what Jesus is explaining and saying is that even right now, something is happening, maybe imperceptibly for the fish, but it is happening unceasingly. The net is being drawn around even now. It is being gathered inevitably towards the shore, that circle becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. The future is coming. The time of sorting is coming closer and closer. And the reality of this parable is that none will escape. None will escape the coming judgment. Hebrews 9, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. And so the reality of the certainty of the sorting in this parable must first and foremost be for us a warning. Chrysostom spoke of the the dragnet, this parable, as a terrible parable. Gregory the Great said of it that it was rather to be trembled at than expounded. I know we've covered this a little bit in the parable of the wheat and the weeds, but I do want to reiterate that truth. When we speak about the church... We talk about, we can talk about the visible church and the invisible church. Have you heard of the difference before? So you have the invisible church, which is the church around the world, the bride of Christ, the elect who Jesus saves and draws to himself. They are all those whose hearts belong to him. We cannot see for ourselves physically, outwardly, the invisible church, because unlike God, we cannot see into the heart. And then there's the visible church. Hillcrest Baptist Church, what we have today in this room is a a, a local expression of the visible church, and that church is a mixed body, wheat and weeds, good fish and bad. And in the visible church, every week, the gospel may be proclaimed week in and week out, and there will be some who are not going to heaven. There are some who have not been reached by the gospel. They are true and false converts, those who have repented and believed in faith, and those who may be attached to the church for whatever reason, caught in the net as it were, but do not belong to Christ. 
And I cannot move past this parable without asking the question, which are you? Which category do you belong to? Jesus would have me ask this question. I know it is an uncomfortable one to ask, but if you want to speak about awkward, imagine again the context here. Jesus and the 12 disciples in a house. Jesus sharing this parable, and who is there among them? Judas is sitting there in the house, listening to these words. And I wonder, I wonder if he was sitting there nonplussed, able to make eye contact with Christ. Or was he squirming in his seat, looking away? We don't know. But what is happening in your heart today? Are you ready for judgment day? Are you ready to stand before God? Has the seed of the king's word found good soil in your heart? Is Christ Jesus the treasure that you found hidden in the field that you have owned as he is king in your life? Is he the pearl of great price? 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says to the church, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Now don't say this in order to Take away assurance. I believe there are many people who are saved who ought to have assurance of their faith and they struggle with that. But I do say it because I know the reality that there are many, even in the church, who seem to have an assurance of faith who should not have that assurance because their hearts do not belong to the king. What category are you in? And let me just say, if you are not sure, if you are not sure, dare Dare you leave this place without speaking to somebody, asking somebody to help you, to pray with you. There are people available up front after the service who will happily pray with you. There are people sitting around you who, who love you and would love to speak to you about this and pray with you. Now, don't misunderstand. When Christ is talking here about the difference between the righteous and the wicked, the sorting of the righteous and the wicked, he's not talking about some moral quality that some inherently have in themselves that distinguishes them from everyone else. That's not what he's talking about. That's how the world thinks. Sometimes we see, do see that thinking in the church. If we can make it all about us, about how good I am, how, how good we are in ourselves, then we can control our own destiny without ever having to lean on Christ. In other words, here's the list of things that I have. Here's the list of things that make me worthy of heaven, that will keep me from hell. And that list just happens to coincide with all the ways that I think I'm scoring above average on the human grading curve. No, the righteous here are not those who are righteous in themselves. They are not righteous by their own efforts. The only distinction that exists between the wicked and the righteous is that on that day of judgment, there will be some who are standing before God outside of faith in Christ, and they will stand condemned in their sin. And then there are those who will be found on that day to be dressed in the righteousness of Christ, sins forgiven, and shame covered by the blood of Christ. I am covered by the blood of Christ. I'm given His righteousness to wear. I'm hidden in the cleft of the rock, or else I remain in my sin, and the wrath of God remains upon me. I won't stand in that day in comparison to you. I won't stand in that day in comparison to the world. I will stand in that day before a holy God, 
awesome in his glory and I will fall short of his glory unless I'm dressed in the glory of Christ. I will fall on that day in my own strength or I will stand in his. So when Jesus says to you and me, repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand, what he does not mean is ship up or shape out. What he means is this. Throw yourself in surrender upon the mercy of the king and believe upon him alone to save you. Have you done that? And if you are here today and you are feeling out of place because you look at your life and you don't measure up and there is temptation that you can't seem to conquer, you don't have your life together, then we say to you, welcome to the club. In that sense, we are all the same. This place is for you. The gospel is for you. And Christ is calling you today to come and to find rest for your souls in Him. And church, I will close with this. If this parable is a warning, it is also, and it must be a call to urgency. We are called to go out into the world with the same message, repent and believe. And it is a message that we speak. It's not one that we can just live with our lives, as we like to say. It is a message. Go into the world, repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Come to Christ, all who are thirsty, all who are weary and labor, and you will find rest for your souls. This urgency surely more and more must shape our daily lives. The reality of the coming sorting, sorting on that final day must be our daily reality. And we've got to stop letting fear stop us from going. You know what happens? And I know it happens for you because it happens for me too. We go and we care more about our reputations than we do the, the people who are lost, souls who are lost. We have to love people more than we fear the scorn of man. Christ took the scorn of man. He, he took our shame. He took the wrath of God on our behalf. And it should be our joy to be identified with Christ, to be found like Him, even in His sufferings. And if that means bearing the weight of their laughter and their scorn and their mockery, then so be it. Don't let fear keep you silent anymore. Maybe you don't speak because you don't believe that what you say will have any difference or have any bearing on people's lives. Do you not trust the power of God? Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is His power. It is not our power. We can go into the world and trust our King. We lean on Him in those encounters. It is His Word that we speak, His Spirit that saves. It is His name that rings in the hearts of men. It has been doing so for 2,000 years, and it will continue to do so. It is not up to us or our power. It is His strength and His goodness, the goodness of our King. He builds the kingdom. He does it. It's His kingdom. We are citizens of it. We are sojourners. We are called church to have kingdom courage. William Carey said this. He was a missionary to India. When I left England, my hope of India's conversion was very strong. But amongst so many obstacles, it would die unless upheld by God. Well, I have God. 
and his word is true. Though the superstitions of the heathen were a thousand times stronger than they are, and the example of the Europeans a thousand times worse, though I were deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my faith, fixed on the secure word, would rise above all obstructions and overcome every trial. God's cause will triumph. Do you believe it, church? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the season that you have been bringing us through as your church. We thank you for the way that you have stretched us and challenged us. We thank you for these parables that hit hard into the, the places in our hearts where they need to go. And Father, Lord, I feel nervous even praying prayers of repentance like this. But Lord, it is a prayer of repentance that we need to pray to you. In our hearts, we have loved convenience. We have desired safety and security above all else. We have thought of ourselves and our own reputations more than people around us who are lost and who are dying. May it not be. Lord, we need your spirit. We are weak. We cannot do anything to change people's minds in our own power. We do not change the heart. Holy Spirit, we know that your elect are out there and we would ask for the joy of being sent by you to them. The joy of being able to use our lives for your glory. Leverage what we have for the joy. The joy of that one sheep being found, no longer lost. Help us to rejoice with heaven and see it happen, we ask. Amen.